beginning at verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Father, we love your word. It is our desire to grow uh, more and more into conformity uh, to it as we are changed from glory to glory by your Holy Spirit into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we come and we ask that you would minister this word into our lives, that you would anoint my lips, a feeble vessel that I am, and that you would anoint each one here, uh, feeble recipients that they are, that we might worship, glorify you, and respond to your word in a way that would be pleasing in your sight. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, um, we <laughs> totally ran out of time. I didn't even get past a Roman numeral one in your outlines there. I was waxing uh, quite heavy on the counterfeits to the biblical standard of purity. And the reason I spent so much time on that is because it's so easy for us to think that we can produce what the Scripture is commanding. And we need to be reminded constantly that Beatitudes 2 through 8 flow from Beatitude 1, where we hold out our hands as paupers, as poor, as having nothing, and we receive something from outside of ourselves that enables us to live out these Beatitudes. Now, in terms of this Beatitude, think of it this way. Apart from grace, no one wants to be drawn to this fiery holiness of our God. They don't want to see God. Romans 1 says that unbelievers suppress their knowledge about God. It makes them extremely uncomfortable. They do not want to see God. And so, uh, in stark contrast, Roman numeral 2, if you look at your outlines there, it says the pure in heart want to see the pure one. Okay? It is a blessing for them. Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's a blessing. They want to see God. They want to be conformed to His image. They are attracted to Him. So what is it that makes them able to do exactly that when John 3.19 describes the natural state of our hearts as loving darkness rather than light because our deeds are evil? That's the mystery of this beatitude. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper said, the reason people do not come to the light is because they do not love it. Love for the light is not caused by coming to the light. We come because we love it. Otherwise, our coming is no honor to the light. Could there be any holy motivation to believe in Christ where there is no taste for the beauty of Christ? To be sure, we could be motivated by the desire to escape hell or the desire to have material riches or the desire to rejoin a departed loved one. But how does it honor the light when the only reason we come to the light is to find things that we loved in the dark? It's a very interesting question. 
He says, saving faith is the cry of a new creature of God. And the newness of the new creature is that it has a new taste. I think that's, a, that's just a very significant remark. It takes us back, really, to beatitude number one, where God gives us something we never had before. He gives us new longings, new desires. Beatitude two, new mornings. We mourn over things we would never have mourned over uh, before. Piper goes on to say, what was once distasteful or bland is now craved. Christ himself has become a treasure chest of holy joy. I think that little quote there summarizes what we're talking about in this beatitude. We're going to be looking at the blessing of seeing God. Now, it's not a blessing to those who have skipped uh, Beatitudes 1 through 5. In fact, for them, it's a misery because seeing God just reminds them of their sinfulness and the distance that they have uh, from God. But to the person who day by day has been living out Beatitudes 1 through 5, he cannot help but say with Moses, please show me your glory. He cannot help but say with David, in your presence is fullness of joy. That's what his heart is attracted to. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I think, is such a marvelous, marvelous contrast between the ministry of death and the ministry of glory. The ministry of death is where you're looking at the law apart from grace, and the ministry of glory is where you're looking at the lawgiver through grace. God draws our hearts out to Him. Now, last Sunday... Rodney, I thought, gave just a marvelous exposition using the, 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 the symbols of two literal trees in the garden. But the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, when you eat from that, well, sure, you gain a knowledge that you're an evil person. <laughs> you know the difference between the two. But it doesn't help you. It leads toward death. But you, when you eat from the cross, that leads to life. It's transforming Uh, in our lives. And so Paul ends his chapter by saying, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And by that, he means that we no longer have spiritual blindness. So for the first time, we can see the reality of God. We're attracted to his glory. We're attracted to his to his holiness. We want to be like him. So the chapter goes on. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It's not a painful trying to be holy. No, it's a liberty that we're driven to be holy. We're we're delighted to be holy because God's Spirit Himself is transforming us, drawing us irresistibly into the heart of God. So he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face. So he's going to be talking about the seeing God. We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, that is the beatific vision. Okay, that's the longing to see God. Like attracts like. So God puts purity of heart within us so that we are attracted and desire to be like the purity of our Heavenly Father who is so gracious to us. Uh, the true liberty comes from looking at God. So we've got to look at our vision. If we're looking just at the law, it's not going to do it. Or we're looking at the expectations of others, it's not going to do it. What the beatific vision is about is not looking at anything but God. It's seeing Him 
uh, our faces like Moses' faces, being transformed from glory to glory. And last week we spent quite a bit of time on the counterfeit standards. Let me just repeat quickly. Uh, there was the, 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 the counterfeit standard of social righteousness where we're measuring what we are by what everybody else expects us to be. All kinds of legalism, but there is other kinds of social righteousness as well where people take away from the standards of God's law. And um, we looked at other facets of, of social righteousness. Second, there's outward conformity. And then thirdly, there was the technical adherence to the Word of God, but that misses the spirit of the law. And then fourthly, there was self-affirmations, which in your outline I've retitled as affirmations of self-esteem, okay? That, you know, I can do it, I can do it, Uh, okay? But um, that's all counterfeit purity. Now, those four counterfeit standards of purity all assume a counterfeit vision. There's not only a counterfeit standard of purity, there's a counterfeit vision that uh, people look at, and I think it's summarized in the words, you have heard it said. Over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ was trying to take people's eyes off of other people. Stop being bound by what they think, and I want you to look at me. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. Constantly he was trying to get their vision to be looking in the right direction. And I think this counterfeit vision is captured in the title of a book written by Ed Welch called When People Are Big and God is Small. Now, I think what that title was trying to get at is that too many people fear man more than they fear God. And when he's talking about fearing man, he's not talking about being necessarily a coward or a timid or shy or something like that, although that can be a part of it. But he's saying a person who has not got a shy bone in his body, who's an angry person, a very intimidating person, he too can be hiding something, fearful that others will expose it. And this is his mode of operation to try to get people off of the thing that he's trying to hide. A super confident movie star or an athlete, he may have very positive opinions about himself, but deep down he's hiding a fear of maybe even what people, not, not only the average citizen will think, but boy, what are those reviewers in the newspaper going to say about my last uh, performance? A person who doesn't witness to his neighbors. He might be covering up a fear of man. What will people think of me? Will they think that I'm a religious nut? Uh, there's many different manifestations of this fear. Jealousy can be a manifestation of being controlled by what other people think. Uh, Both social butterflies and hermits can be controlled by what other people think. And so we saw that you can have a a counterfeit vision. Instead of being captured by the Lord, you've been captured by what other people uh, think of you. And I tell you what, when humans begin to be big to idolatrous proportions, it will automatically short-circuit this beatific vision that we started to look at last week. Now, what Jesus does... In the Sermon on the Mount, remember he's giving an exposition of each of these Beatitudes. Is his exposition of this Beatitude is stripping away all of the curtains, all of the walls behind which we hide. And what he does is he exposes what we're really like. Okay, And he wants us to come to grips with the fact that our only security is in him. In verses 27 through 28, Jesus convinces us he knows about the evil that's in our hearts. You know, people who are reading that, ooh, how did he know about me? (laughs) You know, Uh, verses 29 through 30, he convinces us we already lack. He knows we lack commitment. I mean, which one of you has gouged out his right eye or cut off his right hand? 
Uh, we don't have the kind of commitment that Jesus is talking about. Uh, verses 31 through 32, he sees through our rationalizations. Verses 33 through 37, he th- sees through our attempts at self-esteem. Now, he's not blowing away our smoke screens in order to be mean to us. But people might think, man, he's so mean. Why does he do that? He's blowing them away because he wants us to enter into the joy of the Lord. He wants us to have our security in the Lord Jesus Christ and in him alone. So just think of the contrast this way. When God blows away the the smoke screens of unbelievers, what does Scripture say they do? They call on the mountains to fall on them. They hide in the rocks, you know, and in the, uh, in the caves. They don't want to see God when he's blowing away the smoke screen. What happens when God blows away the smoke screens for a believer? They cling to Jesus all the harder. Sure, they're uncomfortable. Remember when Jesus told the disciples, yeah, are you going to leave too? Where can we go, Lord? They, they, were, they were admitting, you know, he was uncomfortable, but where can we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. So they cling to him, but they do admire his holiness. They want to be more and more like him. So here is the strange thing about this whole paradigm. If you don't handle your sins correctly, even as a mature person, you can come to the place where you're like David when he cried out, how long will you hide your face from me? Several times, I think I've listed out six times in my, my sermon here. Uh, he cried out, how long will you hide your face from me? Why? He had not been handling his sins properly at that point. David missed seeing the beatific vision. On the other hand, you could have sinned five minutes ago and have a pure heart that's able to approach God, enter into the beatific vision. And people say, well, how could that be? How could we have pure hearts at all, being that we are sinners? How can we have that? And there's at least six things in Christ's exposition of this beatitude that I think are involved in having this purity of heart. First, giving up your hearts to the Lord for daily cleansing. I think that's the most obvious one that we need to look at. And there are two things that I want to say about this point. There is an instantaneous side to this purity. The moment we confess our sins, we are cleansed and we are able to come to God with joy instantaneously. Now, Satan hates this and he'll do everything he can to get you not to think that way. And Satan is such a perverse enemy because what he does is he tempts you to sin And as soon as you sin, then he beats up on you. What did you sin for? You know, you're a rotten sinner. He plays both sides, tries to get you to sin, and then he condemns you for having sinned. But what does the scripture say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is the purity of heart. If if you're cleansed from all unrighteousness, you got a pure heart, right? There isn't any unrighteousness left. You're cleansed from all unrighteousness. It's an instantaneous thing that happens the moment you confess your sin. You don't have to sit in the doghouse punishing yourself and saying, well, maybe I'll be more worthy to approach to the Lord if I suffer a little bit. No, that is legalism. That is adding to God's word. This is instantaneous. And so even if you keep falling day after day, you can still have a pure heart day after day if you handle your sin properly. Now, if you hide your sin, you try to rationalize your sin, you're not going to have this purity of heart and you're going to be more and more distanced from the Lord. Now, you could speak of this side as a kind of definitive sanctification. It happens the moment you confess. But there's a second side that is a progressive sanctification that happens over life. K 
can you go for weeks at a time without lusting in your heart? And I say, absolutely, yes, you can. Um, it, it is something that can be progressively more and more entered into. And if you uh, would like a, a paper, I can send you a, a letter that I wrote to one person to help them working through this, uh, where it can enable you to have, you know, a great degree of purity in your mind during the day, at dreams at night, and even conquering the sins of the flesh that flow from uh, that heart. I remember when I was in college that I struggled and struggled with this purity of mind. I, I thought it's impossible. There's just no way that you can get over this. And a pastor said, no, you're just not following the biblical steps. And he enabled me within a few weeks to have mostly cleaned up in my mind during the day and my dream life and over time to gain more and more purity of heart. And so uh, you, you can do that. What about other sins of the heart? Can you make great progress against covetousness? Pride, jealousy, envy, hatred. Absolutely. This is called progressive sanctification. And the more you progress in your sanctification, the deeper your vision of the Lord will be. And that's why I said last week that uh, you're not only going to fully see God in heaven, because we're always on earth going to have some vestiges of sin to deal with, but the point of instantaneous sanctification, uh, yeah, sanctification is you can immediately have a pure heart right now so that Satan cannot condemn you. You can resolve to put on once again the patterns of the Scripture so that those time periods between your falling into sin become broader and broader apart. Okay, So there can be progress in sanctification. Now, a second aspect of a pure heart is a willingness to guard the gates to your heart. Now, in these verses, Jesus speaks of the ear gate, the eye gate. He speaks of the touch gate. And then in verses uh, 29 through 30, he basically says, hey, any of the members of your body uh, can be a gate uh, to your heart. Now, when he speaks of cutting off your right hand, speaks of gouging out your right eye, he's using a very vivid image to say, be radical in guarding these gates to your heart. Now, he, all commentators agree he's not talking about a literal gouging out of your right eye. And if he were, you could ask the question, okay, now how has that solved anything? Because you've still got your left eye to lust with, right? Uh, so uh, all commentators say, okay, what he's talking about is being radical. But here's, here's a more important objection that many people have brought. They say, does this not contradict Mark 7 and Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus explicitly says, out of the heart of man flows every single sin. Here it says, if your eye causes you to stumble. So which is it? Is it your eye causing you to stumble? Or is your, your heart causing you to stumble? Well, it's no contradiction whatsoever, because the flesh, the world, and the devil are all working in tandem, trying to get you to fall. Okay, so Satan, he'll reach right down in there into the flesh through the outward body. And that's why I say it is sheer foolishness to say that you can ignore what people are listening to through the ear gate and, and say, hey, it, it, it's just outward. It's not going to have any impact whatsoever. It's not going to be feeding a monster within, but it really is. You know, there are some Christians who justify listening to the really perverted rock and other kinds of secular music out there that is absolutely defiling their souls. And they justify it and show their lack of purity 
by the kind of justifications they give for why they listen to that. But you know, there's other ways that we can do this. If you think you can watch the filth on TV with your eye gate and your ear gate and say, it's not going to affect my flesh, it's not going to be feeding any of that monster within me, you're just fooling yourselves. That is absolutely not not true. And what Jesus is saying is, cut off the eye gate, cut off the ear gate, stop looking, turn off the TV. He says what Satan can do and what the world can do, the TV's the world, Satan can come right alongside, he can reach down there into your heart, into your flesh, and he can start feeding that flesh until it becomes a monster of lust that is uncontrollable. Some people say, you know, the body is an immaterial thing. And I think you're fooling yourself. I know you're fooling yourself. You say, my hand is neutral. And, uh, you know, we can engage in petting, and it's not going to feed the monster of lust within us. It's absolute foolishness. My dad told me, don't see how close you can get to sin without sinning. See how far away you can stay from sin. So if you want purity of heart, have a willingness to guard the gates to your heart. Be radical. Gouge out those eyes. In other words, quit looking at the temptation. Stop fooling around with it. In fact, one of the words we saw last week for purity, two two sides to the dimension. One's purity, the other's integrity. You know, when you're fooling yourself in Christ's exposition. And this is kind of fooling around and not uh, being serious. A third issue related to purity is a willingness to resolve sins before they are expressed outwardly. In other words, the moment you feel pride coming up in your heart, crucify it instantly, confess it, put it under the blood of Christ. Don't even let it grow, not even for a second or two. The moment you feel it, deal with it. Uh, last week, I, I shared when I was a teenager how shocked I was the first time a cuss word came out of my mouth, and I thought, whoa, where did that come from? I've, not, uh, I've never cussed in my life before, but I realized I had been cussing in my heart and it very naturally gave expression. So here, it's no wonder then that uh, the, the heart adultery of verses 27 through 30 would progress into real adultery in verses 31 through 32. Okay, the inward's always going to express itself outwardly. Fourth, We saw last week that verses 31 through 32 call us to avoid all rationalizations. So a person who is pure in heart is a person who's going to say to the Lord, Lord, I don't even know what you're going to say to me in my devotions. But as I read those scriptures or what you're going to say to me in a sermon, as soon as I see that this is something biblical that I should do, I'm going to do it. I don't care how difficult it is for my pride. I'm going to do it. In fact, interesting, the the word for sin in verse 29 literally is a word for a trap or a snare. So a person who's pure in heart, he's not even going to fool around looking at the bait, even if he doesn't know a trap is there. It's not the fact that he might get caught. He says, that bait is not for me whatsoever, okay? He's not going to rationalize like the Jews did in verses 31 through 32. Oh, you know, they, they were rationalizing about divorce, and remarriage. He rejects all rationalizations. Last clue that Jesus gives as to the nature of purity is in verses 33 through 37. He's basically calling for transparency, total openness. Now, when you have those five things in your life, nothing will be able to keep you from intimacy with Christ. Now, for those of you who are already discouraged, because that's the first thing Satan does. Remember in the parable of the sower? Seed is sown, 
The birds pluck it out. He says, that's what Satan does. He'll send demons everywhere. Try to pluck the word out. And discouragement is one of the ways he does it. He's probably been saying in your heart, man, this is just hopeless. Uh, I've struggled so much with this. I want you to notice not one of those characteristics of purity implies perfection. Not one of them. In fact, every one of those characteristics of purity, pure heart, implies there is the ongoing presence of sin. But it's how you deal with that sin which manifests whether you've got a pure heart or not. Okay, how you deal. And we'll, we'll look at that, how you deal with sin in a little bit. But uh, it's either going to draw you closer to Christ or further away. You could have sinned five minutes ago, but because of the way you instantly dealt with it, right now you've got a pure heart before God. You've got joy before the Lord. Okay, this is what we're talking about. So we've seen that the words, they shall see God, is a promise of closeness to God, intimacy with God, communion with God. Down through the last 2,000 years, there have been... Uh, Christian uh, pastors and writers who have written a great deal about this beatific vision. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon being uh, one who, but many of them have said, that's what this is talking about. It's the rapture. It's the glory. It's the joy indescribable and full of glory when we are ushered into God's presence, when he manifests himself to us. Uh, Last week, I, I read from Psalm 24 speaks of God desiring to bestow a blessing in our lives. But he says, open the gates of your lives and the king of glory shall come in and you'll be able to stand uh, in his holy place. Now, this ability to, to, to see God with the eyes of faith starts at regeneration. So don't think you've got to be some super saint to be able to get into the beatific vision. I've given several scriptures, which we won't go through. I'll just give you one here that shows, hey, even the youngest believer can start to enter into this beatific vision. Paul was sent to the Gentiles, it says, to open their eyes. So already, as soon as their eyes are opened, they're going to be seeing differently, Right? to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the moment a person is regenerated, he looks at the world differently. He looks at God differently. Suddenly God is real to him. He's beginning to enter into that beatific vision. Now, the next point points out, though, that this ideally needs to be growing for the rest of our lives as well. And uh, some of the scriptures that I've given, I should have put John 7, 17 in there, but uh, that shows a growth in discernment. And it's almost uh, like a cycle. It says that uh, when we're uh, willing to do God's will, so there's a, a purity of heart, a sense, hey, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I will show you the doctrine, whether it will be of God or whether it's of men. So if you've got some purity of heart, which God starts you with, he gives you more discernment. As he gives you more discernment, he gives you more purity of heart, and it's a constantly feeding cycle that you go through. But let me just quickly list some of the things from your verses here. He talks about growth in guidance. That's a wonderful thing, as God guides you. More and more clearly. Growth in seeing God in worship. There are some people who come to worship Sunday after Sunday. All they see is the overhead and, you know, other people around them. But they're really not meeting with God. God has not showed up in their lives. And it's such a glory when God is in our worship, when we sense his presence. Uh, There's other uh, scriptures that talk about growth in seeing God in creation. You walk out in creation 
And you just see God's hand everywhere and it brings you to tears and you say, Lord, what an awesome God you are. Or you begin to grow and you're seeing God in the circumstances of your life. Or you begin to grow in seeing providential history in the march of history. This is part of the beatific vision that God is ushering us into. Psalm 36, 8 speaks of satisfaction that we have in his presence, drinking from the river of his pleasures. This is what I desire for every one of you. And then, of course, this joy unspeakable and full of glory will be most fully experienced in heaven. I look forward to heaven. I didn't start with the Whitfield thing to say you can't look forward to heaven. You can. What I'm trying to say is you can have a piece of heaven right now. You can experience some of this beatific vision even now. And so under Roman numeral four, we're going to end with how do we gain this? How do we experience this more and more consistently in our lives? Um, First of all, you need to acknowledge to God you cannot achieve this on your own. Am I sounding like a, a broken record? Keep going back to the same point over and over. Actually, you probably don't even know what that expression means, do you? A broken record. Some of you never heard a record. <laughs> so what's a better expression, Rodney? <laughs> Keep repeating yourself. But that's what we have to do. We have to go to Beatitude 1 and say, Lord, I want a pure heart because I want to see you, but I know I can't do it in myself. And so I come and I receive it by faith from you. Here's what Proverbs 20 verse 9 says. Who can say, I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Implication is, none of us can say that. We can't make our hearts clean. And so, uh, what we're doing is we're going to the Lord in faith, but faith manifests itself through some outward actions. And so, the last eight points in your outline are basically ways by faith in which we can put ourselves in the, in the place of God's blessing. We're receiving by faith uh, his, his uh, blessing. First of all, we should pray for the filling and empowering of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a pretty obvious one. Um, David knew the misery of the opposite of the beatific vision, where he was distanced from the, the Holy Spirit. He knew the loss of passion the loss of joy, the loss of power that comes when you grieve uh, the, 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 the Holy Spirit. And he couldn't stand it. Uh, and this should be so obvious, it shouldn't need to be even mentioned, but we tend to forget it. And the reason we forget it is because there's lots of things that we can do without the Spirit. In our flesh, they're not going to count for eternity. We can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil without the Spirit, but it only leads to death. But let me tell you something. You cannot even eat one little piece of fruit from the tree of life apart from the Holy Spirit drawing you in. All unbelievers are chased out of the garden, aren't they? They cannot eat of the tree of life. You can't have that passion. You cannot have that joy, that security, that relationship apart from Him. So I've put a bunch of scriptures, which we're not going to go over all of those, that show how there is nothing you can gain from the from the the tree of life apart from the Spirit. Let me just summarize with a few quotes from these verses. And these are all quotes I'm going to read. Scripture calls us to walk in the Spirit, sing in the Spirit, worship in the Spirit, rejoice in the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, love in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be moved by the Spirit, compelled by the Spirit, have our minds controlled by the Spirit, live in the Spirit, be taught by the Spirit, Speak by the Spirit. Be washed and sanctified by the Spirit. Pretty much covers the whole gamut of life, doesn't it? He's saying, 
Don't even think you can get one little piece of fruit from the tree of life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit within you. Now, I love the last verse that I've included in there because he says, all of those things I've just read are there for the asking. Let me read it for you. Luke 11. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You are sons and daughters of a loving, gracious, generous, heavenly Father, and He wants you to ask. He wants to give you. Claim the how much more and say, Lord, I need a special measure of your Holy Spirit right now because I recognize and I'm going to forget. That's one of the things I need you to help me is not to forget, but I'm going to forget by the time this sermon's over. So right now, give me a measure of your spirit so that I can live with my children. I can live with my parents. I can live with my brothers and sisters as you have called me uh, to do. God the Father God the Spirit and, and, and God the Son are all at work in your life. God the Spirit's going to take you through the cross to the Father. So this beatific vision is a Trinitarian vision. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are conspiring together. How do we bring these people into joy? How do we help them to drink from the river of our delights? They are for you. They are not against you. But let's say you still find obstructions to seeing God. You may have to move on to point two. This is a prayer from Psalm 139, 23 through 24, and you can make this prayer every single day. Let me read it for you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And the reason we need to pray that prayer every day is because we know how Jeremiah says our hearts are so deceitful. We can deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay. So we say, Lord, turn on the lights. And then by faith, this is point three, believing that he will turn on the spotlight, start doing a diligent search, uh, cleaning out all the spider webs that his light shows. Psalm 77 verse 6 says, My spirit makes diligent search. Don't close your eyes when the Spirit shines the spotlight. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because there's been times when the Spirit has convicted you of something and instantly you're trying to think of something else. You know, you're trying to uh, think that's not so bad and you're, you busy your mind with something else. Do not close your eyes when the Spirit uh, shines His spotlight. Make diligent search. This is what Jonathan Edwards did. At the end of every day, he examined his life. Lord, is there any way in which I've been displeasing because I want to keep growing? I want to keep pressing into that upward call in Christ Jesus. I know we'll never be perfect, but I want to grow. I want to overcome this. That's being diligent in search. Fourth, once the Spirit has shown you what sins you need to deal with, have a genuine repentance, which means a determination to turn from those sins, to turn your heart over to the Lord for cleansing and strengthening. And the scriptures I've given there are basically scriptures that describe how Faith and repentance can give that cleansing. Fifth, pray for cleansing. You don't have to earn cleansing. Just pray for it. He'll give it to you. Pray for cleansing. Ask for it. And then once you're cleansed, you're once again going to have to pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit, aren't you? John Piper said, perhaps we can tie things together with this picture. The fuel of worship is the truth of God. 
The furnace of worship is the spirit of man, and the heat of worship is the vital affections of reverence, contrition, trust, gratitude, and joy. But there is something missing from this picture. There is a furnace, fuel, and heat, but no fire. And I would add, God's even given you the furnace and the fuel and all of those things, but no fire. The fuel of truth in the furnace of our spirit does not automatically produce the heat of worship. There must be ignition and fire. This is the Holy Spirit. The fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit, and the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship, pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. So even though we began with the Spirit, we realize we have to keep going back to the Spirit to reignite that beatific vision within us. Seventh, get into God's Word. And I've listed a bunch of scriptures that show the incredible power that God's Word has to cleanse you and to bring purity into, into your heart. Uh, Ephesians um, 5.26 speaks of Jesus sanctifying and cleansing His church with the washing of water by the Word. Psalm 119, 9-11 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? It's by taking heed to God's Word. And it's by memorizing it, storing it in the heart, meditating upon it. 1 Timothy 1, 3-8. Now the purpose of the commandment is... Now this is a pretty interesting thing. If you were to ask somebody else to fill in the, the blank here. Now the purpose of the commandment is... What would they fill in? Some people might fill in, the purpose of the commandment is for the Jews... And other people might say, well, the purpose of the commandment is to bring you to despair so that you come to Christ. Well, that's one purpose, but there's other purposes as well. Uh, some people think, oh, it just brings bondage. But that's not what he says. Now, the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. And so if reading God's commandment brings you to despair and bondage, you're not reading them through the glasses of grace. Okay, it, 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 the, the whole purpose of the commandment in our lives was love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. And so you ought to be able to let the Word shine its spotlight in your hearts. Anytime you see sin, you offer it up to the Lord, uh, cast it at the cross of Christ, and you move on to joyful obedience, which is the last step. Entry by faith into loving obedience. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's seeing God. He's going to manifest himself uh, to us. But many people, they short-circuit that by confessing their sins and then refusing to obey. That's a false confession. That's a false repentance, and you need to repent of that repentance, okay? And go back through these steps, but do it quickly. You don't have to agonize over it. You say, okay, Lord, I've had a false repentance, and I repent of that, and I come to you, and I want to obey, and so my repentance is a commitment to obey. That enters us into the joy of the Lord. Next, next verse, verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So he is promising to progressively usher us into more and more fellowship, drawing us deeper into the heart uh, of the Father. 
And um, you, can, you can look at some of the other scriptures for yourselves. Now, many commentators point out that these beatitudes are like rungs of a ladder, and each beatitude that you're climbing is getting you closer and closer to seeing God. Now, when you fall down, don't get discouraged. You still have a ladder, right? You get right back up and you climb up and you can do so quickly. Like I said, you can do so almost instantaneously where you reclaim that vision, that beatific vision that God has called us to. So that's my prayer. May God enable every one of you to experience deeper and deeper intimacy with Christ, a further reach into his heart, uh, a greater experience of the beatific vision. Amen. Father, thank you for this, your word, and we pray that it would bear fruit in our lives 100-fold to your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.